There are lots of funding sources for medical research. How important is private philanthropy, and how is that money used? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures. And our guest is Dr. Denise L. Faustman, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Immunobiology Laboratories at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Dr. Faustman and I are discussing how her type 1 diabetes cure research is funded. Dr. Faustman, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for inviting me. So give us a little bit about your medical and research background and where you did your training and how you came to do both clinical medicine and research. Well, I have a MD and a PhD, so that probably means that I'm going to be somewhat laboratory-based. And indeed, that's my career choice right now is doing laboratory work that eventually can be translated into human clinical trials. And I did my MD-PhD work at Washington University in St. Louis. How much medicine do you practice? Do you actually see patients for their type 1 diabetes care? So I see patients with type 1 diabetes, but I don't really take care of them in the traditional sense. I see them for educating them on research protocols that they may want to enroll in, as well as enrolling patients in research protocols. But if you ask me to fix somebody's insulin pump, you're asking the wrong person. (laughs) So how did you get interested in type 1 diabetes research in the first place? When I was doing my PhD work, I thought we were so close to a cure for diabetes, and there had been an investigator named Dr. Paul Lacey who had, for the first time, successfully isolated insulin-secreting cells, islets, from the pancreas of rats. So since that seemed so close and someone needed to do the basic immunology of graft rejection, I took on that project. So that's how I got started. And where did it lead you to? It's an interesting story. So uh, part of my thesis work was to develop the first methods of getting islets out of human pancreases, as well as develop some methods to transplant islets without immunosuppression. So that looked like it was going to translate quite readily into the clinic, and I got recruited by Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital to do those trials here in Boston. And how quickly did it get translated into the patient? The translation went pretty fast, but unfortunately, the data showed that islet rejection or islet survival was very different than from whole organ survival. So it was the first data that we saw that suggested that perhaps just putting islets in people with type 1 diabetes with immunosuppression was not going to be an easy road to a cure. Give us an idea of the scope of the clinical research you're doing right now in type 1 diabetes. Give us a little description of it. Effectively, from those trials that I was mentioning a minute ago, Bruce, we decided that we should stop those islet transplant trials almost 18, 20 years ago because it didn't seem to be a solution to the problem. It seemed like whoever was isolating more islets was still going to have a problem getting those islets to survive. So literally, that took me and my career back into the laboratory 18 years to work on the underlying disease. Luckily, those 18 years have paid off, and we're now headed back into the clinic. And what are we finding? So what happened? So this trial that we're heading for is fairly unusual. It's unusual in that we want to try, and the operative word is try because we never know until we get done with a trial, try to reverse diabetes that's already established. As 
probably our audience knows, there's many trials to capture children who just had new onset diabetes, a blood sugar only a couple weeks elevated. But there's almost no trials to reverse diabetes when it's already established. So we think we know a way, at least in tissue culture in human cells, as well as certainly a very good way in diabetic mice, to kill the autoreactive cells. So we're going to be starting uh, trials here shortly to try to reverse established disease by killing off the autoreactive T-cells. And how many different kinds of autoreactive T-cells are there? Yeah, we classify them by the way they die because one of the unique things about this trial is actually disease removal. Up until this time, it was thought that you had to use immunosuppression or blanket therapies that were immunomodulators because there would be no targeted way to kill the autoreactive cell. We've now found one pathway. We've actually found two pathways, but the pathway that we're headed into the clinic is called the TNF pathway, and we're going to be using that pathway to hopefully kill the most vicious autoreactive T cells, the ones that kill the islets. And if you can kill them, what will happen? Well, that's what we discovered in 2001 in a Journal of Clinical Investigation paper. We had originally been doing these studies to make an end-stage diabetic mouse resistant to recurrent disease after an islet transplant. But instead, what these animals showed is targeted disease removal allowed the pancreas to regenerate. So with that discovery, many people have contributed to understanding if the human pancreas can regenerate, and it appears that that's the case to various degrees. And so this trial is to remove the disease, or at least one subset of very bad T cells, and sit back and see if we can see any regeneration in the pancreas. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. Denise L. Faustman, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Immunobiology Laboratories at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston about her type 1 diabetes research. All right, so we looked at a little bit of the science, but what I wanted to focus on today is how does this research get funded? How much of this is coming from the government, from private philanthropy? What are your resources, and how much does it cost? Well, it's an interesting story. We, David Nathan, who's my clinical collaborator, when we realized we had something that should be translated into humans, we're elated. And our first goal was to go to the pharmaceutical industry that usually supports these sorts of trials. But we realized we had a double-edged problem. First of all, the complete therapy in the end-stage mice actually cured the mice. It was a one-time treatment. It cured the mice fully. So we realized there wasn't economic models in the for-profit industry to support trials that are costly, of course, to get new compounds or even generic drugs approved that are one-time treatments in relatively rare diseases such as type 1 diabetes. We decided that the way to bring this forward most efficiently cost-wise and time-wise was to bring a generic drug forward that had potentially the same effect. The reason we picked a generic drug is obvious to people who do clinical trials is because usually at this time point of development, you'd be spending five years and um, maybe $5 million treating primates with a new compound. But because we were picking a generic drug called BCG that's been in use for 80 years in excess of 4 billion doses, we don't need to do primate trials that are expensive or take five years to do. 
The next reason we decided to use a generic drug is that usually phase one clinical trials that test toxicity take a while to do and are expensive to do. But with a generic drug, you can move a lot faster because the compound's been given to uh, billions of people. So we decided that the approach for this first test of removing established autoimmunity on these targeted T-cells by inducing death should be moved forward with generic drug development. So that type of project was not going to be supported by for-profits because it's a generic drug. So it's supported fully by philanthropic gifts from foundations and individuals. And how much money are we talking about from now until when you think this might be available to patients? Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's available on the shelf. We just don't know (laughs) how to dose it. So if we think time-wise, we'll be 18 more months doing the phase one clinical trials. And then after that time point, we'll need to raise about $22 million to get through phase two. And phase two are really pivotal clinical trials of dose escalations with BCG as well as different intervals of vaccination. That's cheap in clinical trial terms. This particular trial has a higher chance of success, we believe, because we've spent nearly five years developing intricate biomarkers or blood tests to monitor the death of these targeted T-cells. Who are your funders right now? Yeah, our largest funder through the clinical biomarker development as well as through the uh, phase one clinical trials, the Iacocca Foundation. And why were they so interested in this? Well, they're the group that supported the basic research that led to the discovery of regeneration in the pancreas. And when they realized the potential of those basic science studies, they also wanted to be the group that moved it forward through the early phases of the clinical trials. Are you expecting to get more funds from them as you go and ramp up to this 20 or $25 million level? We expect that there'll be many contributors as we move forward because obviously the amounts start to increase. We actually hope that the government comes in as well. We hope all their foundations come in. We continue to hope that the public also shows support for this program. How much of your time is actually spent doing fundraising, grant writing, and other administrative work? Depends on the day, Bruce. (laughs) So probably at least 30%. I don't like to do 40%, 30%, maybe 35%. Did you expect to spend that much time in that part of your healthcare day doing all that work? Yeah, I think there's a lot of decreases in government support right now. So I think it ends up that a lot of people who do experiments like we do and uh, take on risk and high-benefit projects probably spend a higher percentage of their time doing fundraising activities. We'd rather not do it, okay? (laughs) Absolutely. I completely understand that. If you had more money, could you speed up the research? Is money the rate-limiting step? Right now, money is going to be the rate-limiting step as we head into Phase 2. If we had sufficient funds for Phase 2, we'd be enrolling people in more stages of diabetes. I mean, we'd love to do a group of people that had diabetes for an extraordinarily long time, like 30, 40 years. Those patients have an advantage in these kind of trials. One is there's no other trials available for them, but the other marked advantage of working with people there in that stage of diabetes is that if you saw any signal in even one of 50 people enrolled signal, meaning a return of pancreas function, it would then accelerate the ability to move forward versus if you do trials, as you can imagine, in little kids that have new-onset diabetes, those trials take a lot longer to do because the incidence of diabetes is random, you know, whether it's going to occur in January or July. 
a lot of those families are pretty traumatized by the disease, so it's hard to recruit those kids. On the other hand, those kids have an advantage, right? They still have some insulin secretion in their pancreas. So each group has its pluses and minuses. More money means we can do more groups. It takes a lot of various skills to run a medical research lab, including the ability to raise and use the funds. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Denise Faustman, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Immunobiology Laboratories at the Massachusetts General Hospital for talking to us about funding a cure for diabetes and other diseases. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can find our new on-demand and podcast features that will allow you access to our entire program library. Thank you for listening.